0: Stop it! Don't open that door!
1: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 7 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. Happy Halloween to everybody if you're listening to this on release day or I guess the day after release day. If you missed last episode, last episode we talked about our favorite scary movies and talked about a Game Informer-ish article that classified scary movies and give it a listen and see what you think. Let us know what your favorite scary movies are or scary movies or scary games are and what you do to get into the Halloween spirits.
0: Oh, so many times I wanted to interrupt you and say that you said movies every time. I was like, he'll catch it. He'll catch it. And then he did at the end. Oh congrats. Man. You did it at the very end. You Wait got it. it. Wait for
1: it. Wait for it.
0: Normally I jump I'm I'm just Uh, what's the there's a term for it a chomping at the bit to to make you look absurd but you saved yourself so next time maybe there'll be another opportunity here during this hour episode
1: normally i do a pretty good job of making myself like a look like a fool (laughs) i very rarely need help
0: it does it doesn't require much skill for me so uh, (laughs) you know that's that's all right well what are you doing
1: for halloween caleb
0: I am staying at home, uh, and I'm going to tell my wife that she can take the kids trick-or-treating. That's the fun part, apparently. I will tell her with all seriousness that I'm going to stay home and hand out candy, but instead I'm going to turn off my light, lock the door, and not answer the door once. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a curmudgeon. I'm I'm a curmudgeon. I want to be the old man at the end of the street that all the kids are afraid of, which you would think Halloween would be the perfect time for that to happen, but I'm a curmudgeon in the sense that I don't like talking to people. And every year, I I, I tell my wife, I, I don't want to... Can we just not give out candy this year, please? I, I don't want to answer the door. I hate pretending I'm impressed by people's costumes. And I hate telling kids, Oh, look at you scary ghosts. And I, I hate it. So, I, if anything, I just want to put a bowl of candy out on the porch with a sign that says, grab what you want. And I understand that's not in the Halloween spirit. But I'm not, I don't have the Halloween spirit. I, I like the... Uh, movies. I like the decor. I like the general creepiness and then the celebration of that. I don't like answering my door ever. And so for that reason, Halloween is one of my least favorite holidays. Actually,
1: I can get behind that. I'm 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 sort of an introvert myself. So I am all about not answering the door and just eating all the candy myself because I'm also a fat kid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Why should you why should you uh, encourage other fatness in the world right, right? Like, yeah own it i am that way too I, I i want it all for myself so uh, jen's gotten smart my wife has gotten smart and she'll buy the types of candy she buys to hand out is candy that she knows i don't like oh that's cruel it's pretty cruel it's pretty cruel so she's a cruel person uh, horrible horrible <laughs> human being <laughs> she doesn't listen to this uh, she thinks i'm down here like cleaning the basement or something <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I assume you'll be playing some games or, or doing something during this holiday season. Do you have any scary games you're playing, or do you just have other games that you're playing um, that you that you plan on playing during the holiday?
1: Well, after chatting with you last episode about our scary games, you had recommended Colot, so. As I said last time, I was going to dive in. I was going to push off all of my other, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to play that next. And I'm going to mm-hmm, actually mm-hmm. bump you loved that it to the top and you of loved the it. list.
0: Mm-hmm. And you loved it. And you loved it, right? Yeah. You well,
1: loved it. I, I certainly bumped it to the top of the list. I'll go that far. And you loved it. This game confused me because I'm easily <laughs> confusable, but also <laughs> because you had mentioned very last episode, as well as multiple times before in our plethora of of six episodes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that you do not have the patience for stealth games. Now I love (laughs) stealth games. I don't consider myself a patient person, but I love stealth games. And when I played CoLot, I thought, I don't have the patience for this. (laughs) (laughs) It is far too open world for my taste. (laughs) Now, I don't know if I just am a dullard or I don't have the creative juices in my brain to make this work. But I need some sort of direction, and I felt like I got out of the cutscene, and it was just like, "Here's Russia, uh, wander around," and I had no clue what I was doing. And now that didn't that didn't dissuade me from trying. I played that damn game all day Saturday. I played like eight hours of that game, and didn't get anywhere.
0: <laughs> you know, I wish I could say that it was all a ploy for me to make you waste your Saturday afternoon, but and I, I genuinely loved evening. that game. Oh, uh, yeah, no, And of the evening, sorry. Uh, but I genuinely loved that game, and I, I guess I can definitely see other people not loving it. Um, the wandering around part I get, for sure. I think I wouldn't be surprised if I just happened to be in the mindset for a week or so long that I played this game. Uh, played and completed, so I didn't give up on it or anything. So I can't fully say that I really liked it. Um, I wonder if I was in a mental state during that week that, f- for some reason, just worked. Because you're not the you're not the only person I've heard say that the game lacks direction in a way that is disparaging and and just doesn't doesn't encourage you to keep exploring. For me, I I felt like it uniquely guided me in very very uh, limited it, it was definitely there was definitely limited guidance so it's very difficult to go uh, where you needed to go but it also followed certain conventions of game affordance you know you see a red light in the distance and everything else is white well then I should probably go to that red light and as you're going to that red light you kind of notice that there are maybe a couple other red lights okay there's other destination points throughout this map that I need to get to to some degree and you you don't have any uh, weapon. Um, so as you're first traveling to the first, most obvious red light of the game, you, you, you get killed pretty quickly, pretty easily, pretty brutally. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that's probably not the red light I need to go to then because I don't have a weapon once again. So the game can't really expect me to be able to defeat this monster. It's impossible to get around this monster. So I'm going to go explore other places. And I felt like I, I just was, I just enjoyed the journey in a weird way that, yeah, I guess I guess maybe if I was in a different mental state or something, maybe I wouldn't have enjoyed it. But for s- some reason, it just really, really resonated to me. In fact, I would call it one of my favorite games that I played the year I played it. Like, it was that good to me. Wow. So, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I still stand by it. Anyone listening who hasn't played Colot, if you like, um, I, I would call it a walking sim for sure, yeah. but mixed with uh, a bit of um, uh, horror. So, it's like a horror walking sim that takes place on a snowy mountain. Uh, Very little story to drive you, very little direction, but after a while you start learning um, the conventions of the game and you start kind of, you feel like you know where it's kind of taking you. The map, I will say, is an atrocious map. It's horrible to read. It's hard to read. It doesn't make any sense, which isn't really helpful for a game that's all about exploration, I understand. But I do remember having problems with the map system. It was yeah,
1: Oh, yeah. The the map system definitely gave me headaches. Mm -hmm. I really did want to like this game. I had imported it. I thought it was... Right up my alley. And I said so last, last episode, frankly, when I started the the game up, I was into it. I actually started jotting down notes to talk about in this episode saying, okay, I had a pros list and I had a cons (laughs) list. I thought it was really cool that it was based on a a true story, you know, back in, in 19, I think it was the 1950s. There was a group of, uh, students and hikers and things that went up into the, I think it's the Euro mountains to do a bunch of research. And I think they were on some sort of a school expedition and they basically just, well, they were up in, obviously there's it's 1950s. So there's, they weren't really expected to be heard from until they came back down. And three weeks later, people are thought, Hmm, remember those guys that went up into the <laughs> mountains. We should probably figure out what the hell happened to those people. <laughs> So they go up and they try to hunt for him and they they find just the camp utterly destroyed I have no idea what happened and the tent was actually like destroyed, cut from the inside out. So it looked like they were trying to escape something in the tent with them and had had run across the you know, the frozen blizzard of the mountain barefoot. And it really just a creepy story, just really impressively set sort of the, um, oh, this is a scary setting. And I mentioned last episode, how much I like the ambiance and how much the setting of a story drives me for survival horror and just horror movie horror movies and horror games in general and the minute the game gameplay starts the prologue sort of walks you through this backstory and the actual true facts of what happened and then says you know but nobody really knows what happens and then blah, here you go into the game <laughs> and the game starts out and the first thing i wrote down was oh my god the the snow effects and this, mm-hmm. the wind effect coming, just a howling wind that's just creepy mixed with the the not being able to really have much visibility because of the blizzard that you're in. And you're in this abandoned town with the, the old abandoned railway. And I'm not spoiling anything. This, this is literally five minutes into booting the game. And those are things that I wrote down that just really set me into a creepy, creepy spirit. And then as I started wandering around trying to figure out what the hell I was supposed to be doing, it just started to go to the back of my mind and I started to lose. I started to not be as invested in the setting and I feel like I needed to be invested in the setting in order to really enjoy it. Mm.
0: Well, I'm I'm sorry for wasting your time. Uh, however... I think you're wrong, and <laughs> <laughs> but but let's let's lighten the mood and say what what have you been playing uh, recently that that is not um, a, a lie.
1: Listeners will be happy to know that I finished Yeast Eight, mm. so now you know after a month of podcasts of me talking about this damn game, <laughs> I am finally done and I have moved on. I will say that it is fantastic. I loved it. It's a great mix of JRPG, action RPG, anime, and sort of Western uh, mythology. And I've, gone into it at length in previous episodes so that's it i will say go play this game i am excited for yeast origin which just showed up for me um and i'm going to go back and play a bunch of the other yeast games because it's i'm just really invested in the the characters and the main character adol christian
0: nice nice i did actually play the uh yeast eight demo Uh, the downloadable demo from uh, the PlayStation Network, Um, and I had a lot of fun with the demo, so I would not be surprised if I started playing that game at some point in the future after this crazy holiday season of amazing games finally passes us.
1: What an absolute vomit of amazing games this week. (laughs) I can't even put it any other way. I started writing down the games that I received this week, and in our pickup section, we always go through, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I have a whole stack here and I have to pare this down because otherwise we're going to be in this podcast for four hours. I'm still me going through my pickups. (laughs) It's astounding. There's really four games that came out this week that are three of them that everybody's looking to play. And one of them that we are both playing. So... Obviously, the the three big heavy hitters, this comes out on Monday, we're recording this heading into the weekend, so none of us have played three of these games. That's Mario Odyssey, Wolfenstein 2, and Assassin's Creed Origins. All of those come out tomorrow as we record this. They will have been out all weekend as this goes live. Which of those three, Caleb, are you most looking forward to?
0: I'll uh, extract the one that I, I I don't care about. Assassin's Creed. I've never played an Assassin's Creed game. I'm sure I would love them, but uh, they kind of were at the height of popularity at a time when I wasn't playing too many games. So by me ignoring that one, please, fans of the series, don't, make, don't look into that any other way. I am probably most looking forward to Wolfenstein 2, but I have a feeling I will play Mario Odyssey quite a bit more. Um, my my kids are really into well one of my sons anyway is really into Mario, um, which is strange because he doesn't play a lot of Mario games. He plays he loves Shantae. That's like his he's four years old. And he love he loves the Shantae games. Um, and so he will probably be really intri- into Mario Odyssey, and I'll be able to play that with him. Won't be able to play Wolfenstein 2 with him, probably not. So I would say Mario Odyssey. Uh, what about you? I'm coming at this from
1: the exact opposite perspective. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a huge Assassin's Creed fan. I, I've enjoyed the series for the most part, and I'm, that's not to say that the series is not without its faults, because it certainly has faults. But I'm a one of my undergrad degrees is in history and ancient history specifically. Actually, when I was in undergrad as just a wee pup, I sort of envisioned going on to grad school and and getting a PhD in classics and ancient Mediterranean history and teaching at a university somewhere. So I've had more dead languages and, and <laughs> ancient history than any human should ever uh, spend money to take. <laughs> so the ancient Egyptian setting of Assassin's Creed Origins as really the it's the setting from an Assassin's Creed game that I'm most excited about and I'm most interested in um I had a couple of conversations with some Cartridge Club members on Twitter um who had played Assassin's Creed 3, I think uh, Diego Avila, a Latino lawyer, was one of them who really enjoyed Assassin's Creed 3, which was the one that was set in the Americas. Uh, The main character was Connor, the Native American character. And he, that was his first experience, I believe, into Assassin's Creed and enjoyed it. And I don't know if it was just the fact that growing up, I... I grew up in just a small Midwestern rural town. My, my, the town that I lived in growing up was about 3000 people. My high school was like 400 people all in across you know ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grade. And basically every history course that I took in high school was American history. So I'm sort of tapped out on American mm-hmm. history by the time that I get to college. And despite the fact that I'm also, um, you know, I'm, I'm also a political science uh, major. So I'm intrigued by the whole political interplay of our country. And, and I'm intrigued by history, but I just don't really want to game in our history. Mm-hmm. So Assassin's Creed three and that whole arc story arc didn't do much for me. Assassin's Creed one was a little weak in just its overall polish. Although that was probably the second most interested in a setting that I've been just again, it's the closest to ancient history but assassin's creed 2 and the Ezio trilogy so it's two revelations and brotherhood um, was the story arc that i liked the most one of the polygon reviews basically said look it's a gorgeous game and you get into this beautiful setting especially if you're playing it in 4k on a xbox one x uh, that's yet to come or on a playstation 4 pro or a high-end gaming computer and it's absolutely beautiful and you play it you're excited to see all of the sites of ancient Egypt and climb the pyramids and see the city of the dead and all of this stuff. But then you realize a couple hours in that it's just sort of more climb a tower unfog spots, do side quests, run and get this thing, bring it back. And that's the problem that I have with Assassin's Creed. I love the stories telling. I love the fact that they intertwine a, a pretty decent story main story arc narrative with side quests and they do a relatively decent job at that but it's just the me- the the mechanics of the game the climb the tower unfog the land go explore the map do a bunch of side quests over and over and over and over and over and over for Franchise game after franchise game after franchise game, that's the part that just drains on me. And I wish they would go back and they would reboot it because frankly, it's not just the Assassin's Creed games that do this. It's every single mm-hmm. Ubisoft game, whether it's a, a, a dri- driving game, whether it's Assassin's Creed or Far Cry, it just does not matter. Every game it follows the same archetype. It's like they have one engine and they just reskin
0: things hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say that I, I never played the Assassin's Creed games, as I mentioned, but I have played some Far Cry games. And um, everything you mentioned sounds exactly like a Far Cry game.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of people liked Far Cry 4. And Far Cry 4 was actually my first foray into Far Cry since the first one that I played way back on PC back in the day. And that was the thing that I was like, well, wait a minute, this is basically Assassin's Creed, but I don't give two craps about any of the characters or the settings so i really just didn't like far cry 4 at all and that that was why it was just
0: an extension of something i'd already played before a million times i'm with you i'm with you uh so you mentioned earlier there was a game that we were both playing that had come out um and that is south park the fractured butthole (laughs) oh Oh, man sounds painful (laughs) it does how are you? Uh, how are you liking it so far? There's been some mixed reactions to it so far. Um, I know what how I feel. I would like to know how you feel. I'm really enjoying it. Um,
1: I am not a huge South park fan in general. I don't watch the series. I mean, back in college, I watched episodes because it's basically, you know, 12 year old humor, (laughs) but it does have some, it does have some twists on it that make it relevant and, and make it, uh, you know, speak to adults, which is kind of the, the genius behind it. But by and large, I don't care for that type of humor in my just TV watching entertainment, but (laughs) I am having an absolute blast with <laughs> the game. I really enjoyed the, the first game, Stick of Truth, mm-hmm. as well, which I played earlier this year, actually, for the first time uh, in in anticipation of the, uh, the Fractured But Whole. And I love RPGs. RPGs are my favorite genre. And I I was looking for something that wasn't just either a, a Fallout, um, Oblivion, or JRPG spin off and this was a, it was a unique take on an RPG going back to the first game again. And uh, I am not far enough into the fractured, but whole to really weigh in on the story. Um, I'm just scratching the surface of the game, to be honest.
0: It's, you know, I'm, I'm probably mm, 10 hours into it, 11 hours into it. And it, the flack that it's received, uh, flack's probably a hard word, but the, the, the negative aspect, the negative criticism that it's received, um, is largely built around the idea that it feels that it's, it's constantly being compared to the stick of truth and it feels like a less good version of the stick of truth. And my argument is that I think part of the stick of truth's appeal was it surprised people on so many levels. It not only surprised people because it was a competent South Park game, and that had not never happened before. Um, there had been plenty of South Park games, and they'd all been pretty terrible. So this was a competent South Park game, and not just competent, but a great South Park game, and that was surprising to people. It was a great RPG. Even if you removed the South Park characters, it would still be really, really fun to play. So that was a surprise to people. Um, and it was a surprise to people just overall how m- how much fun it was. And those three uh, those three things added to this a uh, huge amount of surprise that the second game, by by nature of it being a, a second game, cannot capitalize on that same surprise. And so I think that's why the second game is not getting as good a reviews or is not getting you know a- looked upon as favorably. I fully believe that if the fractured butt hole had came out first, and now we were seeing the stick of truth. We'd be seeing the exact same kind of pattern. Everyone would praise the fractured butthole as being this amazing game, this uh, this amazing, you know, groundbreaking game. I'm surprised by it. It's great, and then they would have been saying the stick of truth was, yeah, it was derivative. It's not as good. I, I fully believe that. Um, it did take me a f- it did take me a few hours. I will say, with 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 the stick of truth, I was on board from the very very beginning and laughing out loud from the very beginning. And again, because it was so surprising. With the fractured butthole, it did take me quite a bit longer to like the game, um, and I think so far it's not as as big a story. Uh, you know, the the stick of truth did go into space and it you know went into buttholes and it went uh, it went crazy in all all sorts of different directions. And and this uh, the fractured butthole hasn't really done that yet. It could surprise me, of course. I'm probably about halfway through the game, I would assume. Uh, but I'm I'm really really liking it. I've been a South Park fan since the beginning, uh, bar for a few years kind of in the middle, uh, where it just got a little ridiculous for me. I've come back to it recently, and this this newest season has been fantastic so far. The previous season was pretty good. Um, So I'm I'm really looking forward to continuing to play it. And in fact, it's going to be difficult when we do get Mario Odyssey and Wolfenstein 2 tomorrow to decide which direction I want to go, because I kind of want to finish South Park before I even get into those two games.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really why I haven't spent more more time in south park fractured but hole is because of the the epic weekend that's ahead mm-hmm. yeah you know, i i know that i the, to play stick of truth they probably i probably spent a good week in it just i'm i'm a slow player in general because i just like to go and explore and and wander around and see the map and see everything that the the game developer has presented to me um and I only play one game at a time. I don't flip back and forth between games when I play. Mm -hmm. So I, it really, that's the reason I'm really only popped it in and just sort of started to experience it. I, I also wonder all of the things you mentioned about just being not as unexpected and being, Uh, anticipated if the fact that it was delayed had anything to do with it as well. Usually you you think when something is delayed and the developer comes out and says, look, it's just not ready. We're going to go ahead and we're going to make the game that we really wanted to make and we're going to put all the love and attention into it that we wanted. That just, it's it's inevitable that that raises the expectation even more.
0: If I remember correctly, though, The Stick of Truth was also delayed considerably. Um, I think it was... It was originally announced, I'm looking at it now, in December of 2011, um, but I don't think it was even released until maybe 2013,
1: maybe? But with the stick of truth, you didn't have, all of the previous South Park games were just sort of filler. Oh, right. right? They were just sort of shovelware licensed stuff that was out there. You didn't have the anticipation that then the delay said, oh man, well at least they're going to do something awesome with this and... The delay
0: will be yeah. worth it in the end. That's true. That makes sense. Yeah. So what uh, what have you picked up, though, uh, other than these wonderful games we've already talked about, of course? What what kind of picks up? You always have pickups. You're a collector. I'm not a collector. I will never be a collector. Absolutely, 100%. You can mark my words. I will never collect a video game ever. So please, tell me what you're collecting. Wow, well, that's quite the lead up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So obviously I picked up self park fractured, but whole, I picked up the assassin creed's Assassin's Creed Origins uh, Collector's Edition. I've got the Collector's Edition of all the Assassin's Creed games going back to the first one. So that's just... uh, Again, I fail in my attempts to stop buying big box stuff. (laughs) And then, of course, I also purchased the Wolfenstein 2 Collector's Edition because I'm a whore. (laughs) Uh, And by the time this podcast is out, I will have also received Bubsy, the Woolies Strike Back for PlayStation 4. That comes out... um, on Christmas, or not Christmas, Halloween (laughs) day, uh, October 31st, Bubsy was a a platformer that it wasn't a great platformer back in the 16 bit era. It came out for both the Super Nintendo and the Genesis, but it was a a Super Nintendo that was one of the first Super Nintendo games that I had. And I just had a blast with the original Bubsy. Um, So I'm kind of excited to to go through and play the the reboot and, and third game, I believe in the series here.
0: Yeah, I really want to be surprised by Bubsy, this new Bubsy game. I want to think it's great. I want to be surprised. I want to have a good experience. I haven't ordered it, um, and I'll wait till the reviews come in, but... Oh, God, I would love to have just a really solid 2D platformer surprise.
1: One of the things that I really liked about Bubsy, the original game, going back to the Super Nintendo again, is just how self-aware it was. I really enjoy games that sort of poke fun at themselves and, and know where their place is in the game industry. And Bubsy for the Super Nintendo, and I haven't played it for the Genesis, but I assume it's the exact same game, really did that. Uh, and did that in a, a funny kind of way. It it takes things from Sonic, it takes things from Mario and it doesn't make any bones about the fact that it's doing it. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that we get more of that same sort of uh, insider, behind the scenes uh, K-Fabbe, or you know, to use a wrestling term <laughs> humor behind it. But then the the other games that I got were, at least that I'm going to go through, there, there were more, but I'm going to try to limit myself here. The Fire Emblem Warriors Special Edition for Switch. And this was one that I made sure I bought two of at Amazon so that they would ship them together and it would ship in a box because I knew that if they didn't, they would just be stuffed in a, in a bubble mailer and be destroyed. And of course, they shipped them in two separate bubble mailers and both of them came looking like uh, sumo wrestlers had had their way with them.
0: Wow. I've never heard of someone uh, going that far to uh, to get a uh, that's just that's a new uh, level that I am very um, honored to be a part of the conversation <laughs> where you're talking about. It. I never would have thought of it.
1: I do it almost all the time, frankly, anything that's a collector's edition that comes in a, a box that I think may be of size that could fit in any sort of bubble mailer that Amazon or Best Buy or GameStop has. I order two or three of them, whatever the maximum per order is. I'll order that many of them just so that I know that I'll get
0: one. That's not beat to shit. (laughs) And then you just sell the rest of them. So you kind of get, uh, make your money on it. Yeah.
1: I mean, if it's something that's, if it's something that ends up being rare, uh, I'll sell the rest of them or trade the rest of them. And if it's something that's not, I'll just return the other ones. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's, you know, whatever. If they'd ship stuff in boxes, I'd just order one of them and we'd we could be done with this. Good point. And run around this whole crap. <laughs> but then at just the minute I say that, the last game on my game purchase list that I'm going to go through here was Bad Apple Wars for the PlayStation Vita. Long-time listeners, I say that tongue-in-cheek because this is Episode 7. <laughs> well, no, I am I have a complete Vita set, so I'm buying just the Vita stuff that comes out so that I don't have to worry about it uh, down the road at this point. Bad Apple Wars was it re- received a standard release, but then it also received a GameStop-exclusive uh, launch day or day one bundle that comes in a cardboard box. And I think it's got either a soundtrack or a, a, a small uh, art book package pamphlet in it or something but of course GameStop who not only charges you for the game but they charge you for tax and they charge you like five bucks shipping sent that thing in a bubble mailer and that's all beat to hell and there was a Uh, a max order of one so I'm gonna have to go uh, try to track down a local copy that isn't gutted and cut open and filled with stickers and poop and the whole deal (laughs)
0: <laughs> Sometimes you have to pay extra for poop.
1: GameStop new, it's a thing. <laughs> but I think probably one of the most interesting, at least one of the things I'm most excited about picking up this past week, was a book, not a game at all. And it is Phoenix 4 The History of the Video Game Industry by Leonard Herman. And this is, without a doubt, the definitive history of the video games industry. If you are looking for information on just the industry that we all love and we all love to research, this is a book that I can't believe more people don't know about. Leonard Herman has been writing and publishing Game, the very first Phoenix, this is Phoenix 4 because it's the fourth iteration of his work. And it started out, it's called Phoenix because the first version came out, I think in 1993, so like he's been you know publishing video game books since most of us were not even gaming right I mean we're old in this industry Caleb <laughs> you and I are dinosaurs um, what yeah yeah <laughs> we are fossils but Leonard Herman has been he is absolutely uh, uh, a gem for our industry because he's been doing this a long time the book is called phoenix because it started out as a study of the video game industry crash in 1983 84 and how they they basically almost killed the entire industry and and companies were hesitant and reticent to get back into it before nintendo sort of jumped in with both feet and it was almost uh, looked at as a fad that had come and gone, and really did rise like the phoenix from the ashes. And now this is his fourth publishing. The last, the Phoenix Three, was published, I believe, uh, a little over ten years ago. So this one goes above and beyond with all of the new, newer consoles. And actually, he gets into consoles from Japan, consoles from Europe, and really takes more of a global look at it. And I highly recommend it. It's not cheap. The hardcover color edition. Is eighty bucks. I think he does do some sales and stuff. If you can track him down at conventions, um, then you can get a nice uh, autograph copy and whatnot too. But if you can get it, uh, if you're not going to conventions, definitely worth the money to go to Amazon and and pick it up. Uh, Leonard Herman, Phoenix for the history of the video game industry. Mm,
0: that sounds delicious. I, uh, I'm i big into video game books. I love video game books. I love uh, narr- narrative stories, especially about video games and things like that. And so maybe this is a good time to sort of plug uh, if the Cartridge Club. If anybody out there is listening and if you're a member of the Cartridge Club or if you're not, cartridgeclub.org, uh, there is a thread in the forum where I'm trying to get a video game uh themed book club going so we can actually discuss and talk about video game themed books so definitely check that out we'll put a link in the in the description of the show notes of this episode to show you exactly where that that thread is i would love to have lots of nerds like me talking about video
1: games oh it'll be fun we can prove we can read
0: yay yay (laughs) so
1: many people doubt me (laughs) uh so So that's those are my pickups caleb now uh, you are not a collector i'm not a collector tend to buy digital games, you tend mm-hmm. to support the indie stuff, you tend to come up mm-hmm. with this obscure stuff that I've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now you as someone who doesn't purchase, vid- you know, purchase the physical games, I know mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. collect anything. Not don't do not collect anything. What have yes. you purchased with your non-collecting self? Um,
0: I started collecting some games. <laughs> so it's uh... <laughs>
1: it's a disease, my friend. <laughs> Run as far away as you can. Well,
0: and in the last episode, we did we did establish uh, this has been a long build up to something um, where I think I'm going to start collecting a very particular type of game, which I'll get into. But in the last episode, I did mention that I have a history growing up of collecting weird shit. Uh, listen to episode six if you want to uh, hear more about that. Um, and I also am a fan of limited run games and I do have all of the PlayStation 4 limited run games and and so that is a collection in and of itself. That started off as me buying the games because they were genuinely good, but I'd be lying if I said there weren't a few turds here and there along the way in the, in the limited run games library. Most of them are still very good though. However, I did... I, I think I'm going to – the catalog for this particular publisher of games that I'm going to start collecting is it's a limited catalog, which is good. Um, so I don't have a ton to go for. It's not rare or anything like that. The only reason I'm really collecting them is because I realized that a lot of the games that I – or a few of the games that I already owned and a lot of games that were on my wish list happen to be published or distributed, I, I guess, published by this particular company called Sedesco Games. And I had – so I played Tesla grad years ago on the PC, um, and I loved it, and it was a game that always stuck with me, it's a 2D pl- platformer, puzzle platformer, it's it's so good, it's such a such a great game, if you like 2D platformers, there's absolutely no reason you shouldn't have this game and play it, it's so good, um, so, and that game always stuck with me, um, and then a couple of years later, uh, I was watching uh, Radical Reggie, he he often does um, guests appearances on uh, the Metal Jesus Rocks channel. He has his own channel as well. Very uh, charismatic, cool guy, um, but he always seems to have recommendations for games that just strike my interest. They, they, he's recommended a few games that I picked up, and I've ended up, in fact, he was actually the one, I think, that recommended Colot. Um So he, he's, we seem to share interests in games, and he, a couple of years after me playing Tesla Grad, rec- recommended a game called Guiana Sisters, which I think is a reboot or or a port of a game from another system. So it's not unique to PS4, but I bought that game, played it, and really, really, really enjoyed it. It got a little lame toward the end, but really enjoyed it. Um, then later, I heard about this game called Adam's Venture Origins, which which I think, if I remember correctly, is kind of a walking sim. It's been on my two-play shelf for a while. I own that game. Um, haven't played it yet, but it looks exactly like the kind of game I would love, and so I was sitting kind of just watching, uh, pl- or playing a game, I think this was just a few days ago, playing a game, and I noticed I had those three games all from Cedesco. and I think I thought, well, let me figure out what else is from this company. And as I was reading through their catalog, I noticed there were a lot of games that I had heard about and not really thought too much about. But seeing the title, seeing the cover, I was like, okay, I, I do remember that game. Let me let me look into this. And it turns out all these games I started looking into all looked like amazing games that would, that, they looked like they were made for mm-hmm. me. You know, for example, um, Ether One X uh, is kind of a horror walking sim type game, I think. Um, the last tinkerer city of colors is sort of a, 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 uh, puzzle kind of platformer game. I think is a, that's what it looks like among the sleep is kind of also a horror, uh, walking sim type game. And all of those just those, they looked amazing. So I ordered all of those games and I know I'm supposed to be on a video game hiatus that apparently isn't working. Uh, so I ordered all of those games and I got those in the mail recently and I'm really looking forward to playing all of those, but Everything just seems really cool from this publisher. There are there are a couple of games that I, you know, depending on whether or not I fully dive into actually collecting this, the catalog for this publisher, the, there's a couple games that I may never get. There's a farming sim game called Real Farm, I think it's called, and it's fairly new. Mm-hmm. I don't care anything at all about that game. I don't care anything all about farm sims. So that might be one that I, that I don't pick up. But otherwise, uh, I was just happy to find... Uh, Something that I was happy to find something else that I could look forward to, knowing that next time Sodesco comes out with a game, I'm probably going to like it. I'm going to look forward to it. Something else I can get a little, a little happy and excited about. So I was very happy with with, with finding that and, and putting putting all those pieces together.
1: Absolutely. Sodesco has been one of the ones that I've been collecting for a while because they tend to be more budget type Releases mm-hmm. they tend to be anywhere from the nineteen ninety nine to twenty nine ninety nine maximum price, and I just think that they're games that'll end up being they fly under the radar, and most of these mm-hmm. games are p- games that people have never even heard of, um, but. As you've mentioned, they're really, really cool. A lot of really niche genres, whether it's tower defense or survival horror or shmups or you know, sort of your uh, adventure games, and they tend to go out of print relatively quickly. I've got, I think, twenty of the Soedesco releases for for PS4, and some of them are are getting really tough to find. Toki Tori 2 is a tough one to find you basically play as like this bird who's um, protecting an egg and it's uh, it's sort of an adventure mixed with a platformer um, with some weird mechanics that one has been out of print for a while and is getting difficult to find so if you find that one or if you stumble across it definitely pick it up Rheus, which is a real-time strategy that one is getting a little bit tough to find Earthlock Festival of Magic, which is a more of a uh, a JRPG adventure type fantasy game. Tower of Guns is a tower defense, uh, and that one actually Tower One or excuse me Tower of Guns and Ether One, um, both actually came out in Europe in Steelbook editions with hmm. nice uh, you know plastic covers and and Steelbook cases, and so odesco has got several games that uh, tend to come out is special editions over, uh, across the pond. When I saw you post that in your, <laughs> uh, you know, in our show notes and, and prep for this episode,
0: I was like, Oh yes. Glorious. You included many exclamation marks. So <laughs> I knew this would be <laughs> worth talking about. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, again, because all these great games are coming out this week. God, it's going to be a while since I get to any of these. And that, that hurts. I I, I, Pride myself in actually playing all of the games I have, um, and I have such a backlog that I that's just and that's one of the primary reasons I'm not pulling a trigger on the new uh, 3DS XL Super Nintendo looking version that came out. I, I I don't need a whole new library of games to to play. So, what are you gonna do? What yeah, are you
1: gonna do? fair point. Oh, one other one that I wanted to mention, just for your own knowledge, if you come across Nero nothing ever remains obscure
0: that one is definitely getting tough to find as well so if you stumble across that snag it and i think that one's actually getting tougher to find only fairly recently because i've actually had that in my amazon wish list for for probably about a year or so um never really actually pulling the trigger to pick it up yeah it came out in uh june of june of 2016 so yeah it would have been right about a year because i probably would have heard about it right when it was coming out um and it's been in my wish list, and I've been meaning to pick it up, and when I realized it was a a Sadesco game, I was going to add it to my batch of games to buy, and I realized that the only versions available were used, and they were, like, 100, uh, over $100 Ooh. or getting close to it. Wow. And so I thought, I, I can't do that anymore. And, and it's, again, one of those games that's been in my wish list for a while, and I, I have been so close to pulling the trigger on it for so, much, so long, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not doing that now. Boo. Yeah. Yep. Yep. What can you do? What can you do? Well, I'll tell you what we can do. We can talk about other shit that we probably want to buy that's coming out soon. Oh, How about this uh, This Analog? Uh, so the company Analog is putting out a new port. I'll let you take over the story. It is your story. Uh, I'm kind of excited about it, uh, but uh, eek, the price still. So
1: Analog, for, for those who don't know, they created the Analog NT, which was developed and designed by Kevtris, who is real name is kevin horton and he is the genius behind the HiDef ness and the high def ness is the hdmi mod for the nintendo entertainment system and he developed the analog nt and which then became the nt mini which is a fpga based nintendo and it's not a emulator box it's a a, a completely hardware based all of the the processing is done via FPGA hardware processors uh, and and cracked BIOS basically, and plays original games. And then after the release, Analog allowed Kevtris to actually release a bunch of cracked cracked cores for other. Systems. So if you have an analog NT, you can load it up with a bunch of uh, game system biases and play pretty much anything that's eight, any ROM that's Nintendo era or before. So it's really sort of a jack of all trades. It's got HDMI out zero lag. Um, it's got Bluetooth controllers. You can use. It's got four controller ports in it, so you can actually uh, hook up. It's almost like a, an N, an NES tap and an NES system all built into one, and just a really sleek look. But the drawback is is that it is definitely it's the Bentley of of Nintendo boxes, right? I mean, the the thing mm-hmm. ranges anywhere from four fifty to five hundred dollars, and really that's that's about the price that you would pay for a Nintendo, an original Nintendo console, a high-def NES board, and somebody to install it for you. So, for the price of the Analog NT, you could really be playing on original hardware, modded, full HDMI, and the whole deal, which I personally prefer. I don't have an Analog NT, don't plan on getting one specifically for that reason. Now... Recently, I believe it was last week, uh, Analog and Kevtris announced that for $189, they are releasing the Super NT. And the Super NT is a Super Nintendo version, or Super Famicom version, if you're in the East, uh, of the Analog NT. It plays Super Nintendo, Super Famicom games, and it has an SD port. Presumably, KevTris will be releasing all of the cracks again for other systems. So it should be a box where, via FPGA, via HDMI, hooking it up, easily one unit to your to your hd tv you should be able to play almost any rom or original super nintendo cartridge leg-free high def in basically uh you know high high quality hardware now where i go back and forth on this and now obviously the 189 dollars this is almost a no-brainer even if you're putting it in in a a, a living room you don't want your original hardware to get touched or anything like that that's really the reason i've been debating on it it's really almost a a, a substitute for a retro pie you know where mm-hmm. you can use original hardware original controllers uh, the whole deal um and not actually be emulating things it's more of a hardware simulation uh, and i know that's just getting into you know a nerd argument about what's emulation (laughs) and what's hardware simulation and why is one good and why is one bad. And I'm I'm not going to get into that. There's plenty of other podcasts where you can listen to that ad nauseum, (laughs) but even the, the hardware simulation, I tend, I, I really like playing things on original hardware. And if I have to mod the original hardware in order to, to play it on it, I, to me, the, the difference between emulation on, say, a SNES Classic or a Retro Pi and an analog NT box that's completely redesigned hardware, FPGA, the whole deal from the ground up, I tend to not really differentiate them. And I know thats I'm in the minority on that, and it's not emulation. I'm not arguing that. But for my money, give me the original hardware. Let me mod it so that I can, uh, you know, put it out uh, out to upscaler or uh, direct native via HDMI through a, a board like Kevtris's High Def I know uh, it's pinching hairs, but I just like having the original <laughs> stuff in my in my console cabinet.
0: I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that, and I won't. but if you
1: don't have original hardware and you love gaming and you just want a box to do some cool stuff and play games highly 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 recommend the analog super nt kevtris kevin horton is an absolute he's he's he and ben heck are probably two of the top engineers (laughs) in our industry
0: Ah, i love ben heck um don't tell anybody but i have a retron 5 so your, your secret's safe with me i'm a good kid otherwise i mean
1: honestly when you think about the retron 5 which is it is an emulation box right and and emulation is just it's not as pure it's not it's got lay it's got leg problems it's got software problems it's got compatibility problems but when you think about a retron 5 for i think the retail on a retron 5 is like 140 150 mm-hmm. something like that and you can usually buy them for you know, somewhere around the 135 brand new you can buy them for you know 75 on up used used tends to be a little bit wonky because the power supplies on them tend to get fried pretty frequently but comparing a 150 150 retron 5 to 189 analog nt analog super nt it for my money there is absolutely no comparison because the analog super nt higher quality parts higher quality engineer behind it you can you don't need all of the uh, it's got an sd port directly in it so you don't need you know flash carts and all of that stuff it, it'll play roms natively once the F- once the FPGA cores are all released by Cavitris, and no doubt they will be, he released them for the Analog NT. Uh, I, if you don't have a Retron Five and are looking for something similar, definitely give some serious thought to the Analog Super NT.
0: Mm, I should probably uh, cry in the corner now. Actually, I you know I don't play it nearly as often as I thought I would the uh, Retron Five. I think just because again I have so many such a backlog of. Modern games that I want to play. Eh, what are you gonna do? Yeah, what are you gonna do? yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, this Microsoft Connect that's being axed officially.
1: It was a long time in coming. Microsoft <laughs> officially announced this week that the Connect is kazonked, Right? It's. Uh, <laughs> I get it. it. Yeah, that's what I do. I make funnies <laughs> that are not funny. <laughs> the Connect is dead. Oh, long live the Connect. It is. Widely panned in gaming circles. I mean, I am. it's no secret that I absolutely despise motion gaming of any kind. That's why I don't like the Wii. That's why I'm thrilled to see that games for the Wii U are being ported and released on the Switch. Because I hope that they will be playable sans motion control for games that required motion control. I just think the whole thing was gimmicky for gaming. It, the, the technology is just not there for gaming and frankly, I don't want a VR type where I'm, you know, I don't want a holodeck experience in gaming. I want to just sit on a couch. I've worked all day. I want to get home and I just want to relax and play some video games I don't want to wrestle with it. Now to say that the Kinect was a failure in gaming is not to say that the Kinect was a failure in technology. In the technology space, the Kinect was phenomenal. Uh, to think about it, the Kinect was first revealed at E3 in 2009. So what we're talking eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, something like that. And at that time, the the technology was really astounding. I mean, the, the voice recognition, the, the motion sensor capabilities, even in in unlit areas, when you see an infrared view of a Kinect in use with all of the dots being sprayed around the room, and you can kind of see how that technology actually works. It's not really, I mean, it's, it's a far cry from a Wiimote. And frankly, the, the developer, the development studio behind the Kinect, Prime Sense, and Apple actually purchased Prime Sense in 2013. And so the connect, while the connect may be dead, the connect technology lives on in Apple products and nowhere is this more visible than, uh, as we re- as we record this today on Thursday, the 26th tomorrow, the iPhone 10 is available for pre-order and the iPhone 10, one of the biggest differentiators between that and the eight is that the iPhone 10 has the true depth camera and that's got the facial recognition. It's got the capability for the phone to lock and unlock just using, just by seeing your face in the, uh, in, in the detection and the way that that works is via, uh, prime senses, Technology that was first released in the Kinect, so that it's not able to be fooled by just a photo. It actually does the depth, the depth sensing. And it's, it's actually been tailored to the fact where they've had master um, Hollywood mask makers try to fool the new true depth camera and haven't been able to do it. So, I mean, the, the technology itself has got a real legacy. And, and I think that will be the true way that the connect will be remembered. Long live the
0: connect. Long live the connect! Yeah, the witch is dead. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I, I've never played a connect. I uh, never played with a connect, and uh, it looks like I will never get the chance to now. And I'm not sad about it. You know what else you'll never get to play?
1: Wolfenstein Two: The New Colossus
0: multiplayer. And also something I wouldn't have wanted to play anyway. uh God, thank you for bringing back the segues. We kind of we abandoned that for a while. I appreciate it. So Wolfenstein 2: The New Colossus foregoes multiplayer because it would, according to the developers, dilute storytelling. Hallelujah! This is great. Thank you, Wolfenstein developers. Thank you, Machine ga- Machine Games. Uh, I-, I love you. Uh, I-, I have long been a proponent for story campaigns. Perhaps my long diatribe earlier about me being very anti-engaging with humans, and that's the reason why my uh, why Halloween is one of my least favorite holidays. Uh, maybe that should tell people why I don't really like multiplayer gaming either. I'm uh, just not a fan of it, and I love single-player storytelling, and I love just storytelling in general. Um, I, I used to, at one point, wanted to make my life as a storyteller, so it's very important to me and to see developers do uh, embracing this and not trying to make up excuses as to why they may not have multiplayer ambitions or, or especially considering the trend of games right now is definitely multiplayer and in fact there's been stories recently about the death of single player and how um, multiplayer will essentially be the wave of the future and, and there will be fewer and fewer single player campaigns uh, now that you're able to uh, monetize multiplayer campaigns quite a bit more and you can build esports around multiplayer games and, and that sort of just fuels a lot of money That all the, all of that stuff that I don't like I love seeing a developer embrace sto- uh, storytelling and embrace a single player campaign. I love it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is, you, you alluded to this, this is really Bethesda and their developers embracing sort of their role as the anti-EA in in our industry. Resources are finite. People say, oh, well putting multiplayer into a game isn't that hard you just make your you make your single player story and then you have deathmatch well yeah but somebody has to build deathmatch right Mm -hmm. and and developing development studios and, and game development is expensive enough as it is we've discussed how game development costs are now rivaling that of hollywood studios well hollywood studios don't just make uh you know extra segments to their movie just for the fun of it, all of that stuff costs money and takes resources away from the rest of the the, the development studio and whether it isn't the, the game, whether it wouldn't have been Wolfenstein to suffer, it would have been something uh, else that they may be working on in the background that would have suffered. And I am all for single player, really the only kind of multiplayer gaming that I do is couch co-op. Uh, if I'm going to be playing multiplayer, I want to just be able to hang out with a friend, you know, in the same room, share a, a couple of uh, barley sodas and make uh, make make a little bit of social time out of it, which I know probably makes you cringe, um, <laughs> makes me cringe kind of just even thinking about it. But uh, hey, that's uh, that's what I do. That's how I roll. That's my social time. <laughs>
0: Uh, no, I don't I, I like I like I like multiplayer couch co-op. That's just fine. In fact, a friend of mine um have a date later next week to play some Atari games. Uh, just sit back, have some sodas, tr- uh, play some Atari games, and uh, that's a great, great evening for me. Nice. so that that kind of stuff I like. That's all right. As long as no one knocks on the door during our, our (laughs) playtime
1: that's right trick or treat right out go ahead and (laughs) and trick it up Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so one thing that i did wonder and i doubt this is the case just given that it's bethesda and so many of their games are single player right that's sort of in their in their ethos is it's who they are but the cynic in me Wondered if they've really, as we mentioned last last episode, they've embraced this. We're anti-Nazi and you know, screw <laughs> screw you all for uh, you know whoever in this uh, environment may be pro-Nazi, which we're all for, right? <laughs> but I wondered if some part of the canceling of multiplayer didn't arise out of all of that hubbub. Um, since presumably in a multiplayer deathmatch mode, one team would need to be playing as the Nazis trying to win. And this is just me playing devil's advocate here. I don't think that's actually the case, um, but it was an interesting thought.
0: Well, yeah. And one thing um, I'll kind of lightly correct on because anybody who hears this podcast may do that. You did probably inadvertently just state that uh, that they canceled multiplayer. And as far as we know, there was never the decision to have multiplayer to begin with, as far as I know, unless I didn't read the article very in depth, but as far as I know, they were never planning on multiplayer for, uh, Wolfenstein too. So
1: that that was my missing I then I may have misread it and thought, or just assumed that, oh well, it was. They must have had multiplayer because it's 2017 and everything has multiplayer.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of dates, uh, one important date to probably keep in mind is the fact that the story was actually started being. Uh, it was. It was. It, the story started uh, being written back in 2014, and so if. If we imagine that they put a lot of focus on the story, they started building a single-player campaign and was working on that, even if the current social and political climate were to have influenced their decision to not have a multiplayer, um, it seems like it would have th- that they still wouldn't have had enough time to develop a multiplayer. I feel like it, it still would have taken a while. They would have had to start multiplayer building quite a while ago, and really this climate didn't happen until, you know I, I would say, probably didn't really come into prevalence until... Uh, the beginning of 2016, maybe sort of the mid-2016s is when, you know, the whole Nazi thing started coming up and back around. So I'd say probably not, but, you know, I'm not a game developer. I wish I was, but I'm not. (laughs) Or do I? Or do I wish I was? This is an unintentional segue. (laughs) Video games are destroying the people who make them, says this article from the uh, New York Times. So... Uh, this article, these are the kind of articles I like. So frequent listeners of the podcast know that I always like to bring up these articles that talk a little bit about the psychology of gaming, uh, talk about sto- not necessarily just what's coming out or all the new games or anything, just more of sort of the meat behind gaming itself. And this article is really cool to me because it dives into... Uh, what developers, game developers called called a crunch, which is essentially a sudden spike in work hours. And it can be, as this article says, as many as 20 hours a day um, that can last for days or weeks on end. Um, I work in an office that does have web developers and they often use the term crunch. Now, I I don't think we keep them 20 hours a day lasting days or weeks on end, at least I hope not. Uh, But I have heard this term and I know it's a very common term or familiar term. And this article talks about how that can be Physically, uh, it can be physically, it can physically affect the the health of the developers. It can affect their home life. And it can, I mean, it affects them in a lot of ways that any working late or working overworking anyone would do. But it seems to be uh, very prominent in the game development world. Now, this article doesn't necessarily, as far as I remember, compare the game development world to other worlds. You know, it doesn't say, hey, is this more or less of a concern uh, compared to say you know uh, working in the movie industry or working you know in making iPhones in China or whatever it might be it doesn't really necessarily say that um, but I would imagine that this is probably pretty unique to uh, to web de- or to uh, game development um, and I'm trying to you know when I read a story like this I try to relate I try to think what what do I do I see myself in this at all and I can definitely tell you I'm, I'm a huge um, I'm a huge nerd when it comes to like, uh, spreadsheets and, and I'm learning game development. I'm learning coding and that's just kind of a hobby of mine, but there have been plenty of times when I've stayed up way too late working on a dumb, stupid problem. And I realize it's 3am on a work night and I'm, you know, trying to fix this bug or fix this problem or, or figure out this formula in Excel. Um, and for me, that was almost like, I didn't hate it. I was like, this is great because you get on a you get on a, you sort of just get engaged with the problem, and it's a fun problem to have, and so when I first read this article, I thought, ah, stupid game developers, you know, game developing is fun, and, and when you're on a roll, you you want to figure these things out, so it's actually exciting to learn these, to work these long hours, and it's exciting to do that, but of course, I'm vastly generalizing, and that's not fair. Um, so, I think while there may be some elements, at least from my own personal experience, of the crunch actually being something that's kind of fun because you're motivated by the crunch. You're not motivated by the consequences of not meeting that crunch necessarily. You're more motivated by the the problem and the process itself. I, I hope that's the majority of the time when it comes to the crunch. But uh, there are actually, uh, there's a, a, a developer that is, um, let me see if I can see the quote here. There is a developer... Uh, that is actually taking a stance against all of this overtime crunch work. And there's also an organization of. Here we go. Um, there's a. Uh, t- Tanya X. Short, a co founder of the independent studio Kit Fox Games, asked colleagues to sign an online pledge against excessive overtime. The pledge, which was published last year, has been signed by over 500 game developers. So, you know, it is a problem. Um, and. Should I feel sad about playing video games now? I don't know. <laughs> it's a problem created by game
1: publishers who are by and large chasing the quarterly earnings. You know, we we'd mentioned earlier that perhaps one of the reasons that people were were down or or not as high on South Park fractured but whole was the fact that it was delayed and the fact that it, it, that may increase expectations for a game. I think the flip side is, is that people would rather see a game delayed than come out half done. Like, I think back to Assassin's Creed Unity, and that game was damn near unplayable when it first came out and and remained as such until the first major patch, a month after the game launched. Now, would I rather have a game that was delayed for two three months and then came out and was may not have met my expectations but was a game that worked was a game that wasn't riddled with bugs was a game that just didn't have game breaking problems and the answer is yes i would rather have that delay every single time now the problem with that line of thinking is that that's a that's a consumer facing line of thinking right that's how how we as gamers tend to think now most of Game companies are either publicly traded themselves or are subsidiaries of publicly traded. Companies And publicly traded companies have a legal duty to their shareholders in order to maximize profits from quarter to quarter. And that leads to deadlines. And that's not unique to the game industry. And you alluded to the fact that this article doesn't say that the the game industry is unique in this uh, respect. But I think it is helpful to, to shed light on the fact that it is definitely not unique to the game industry. I mean, I have friends that work in movie production, TV production. They all have the exact same deadline crunches. And, and I think that's a little out of the ordinary for folks who are used to working in a creative environment, perhaps. Um, and maybe that's just my own personal bias saying that, but I think that, um, they often, my, my friends often say, look, you can't rush, you know, the creative juices and, and that may be the case, but you also need to have a, a deadline and, and be beholden to the deadlines that the rest of your supply chain demand. You know, you're not, um, you're not just creating something to, to hang on a wall whenever it it's done. It's, you have, um, a, a developer is, has a publisher that's dependent upon them who has a distributor and a manufacturer who's dependent upon them who ultimately has a retailer who's dependent upon them. And the first line in a supply chain is often the, or is always the most sensitive to any kind of delay. There's a, uh, in business, there's something called a queuing theory where any delay earlier in the queue in the line of the process that ultimately leads to the end goal, any delay earlier on compounds everything down that line. So a delay of a week in the development process may lead to a delay of a month in the develop into the manufacturing process, which may lead to a delay of a month and a half in the shipping and distribution process, which may lead to a delay of two months in the retail process. It's just something that businesses throughout deal with um in in my job i we have crunch time quite frequently i deal in contract negotiation in in television and um you know for a large for basically january through april this year uh, we had a lot of contracts that needed to be negotiated a lot of uh, a lot of work that needed to be done and i was putting in you know 110 hour weeks for months on end and it's absolutely i can i can relate with with what the developers are talking about here and they're they're feeling needing to um to sign a petition to to ban it but that i think the the better resolution would be to have developers understand that that's part of the process and build in build in mental health things to to help Alleviate that process. Maybe once you've gone through those crunch times, then everybody gets, a, you know, a, a two-month hiatus or something. You know, a sabbatical to go and recharge their batteries because burnt-out employees are no good to anybody
0: either. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I should mention that this article uh, was written by Jason Schreier, Schreier, who is the author of a book called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels: The Triumphant, Turbulent Stories Behind How Video Games Are Made, which is my vote for the first Cartridge Club video game book club. So mm. go in there and vote for that book because it sounds amazing. Look how intertwined this episode is. <laughs> oh. And uh, speaking of Halloween. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how about,
1: speaking of how scary working months on end is.
0: Oh, there you go. Yes. How video games scare us. Parentheses and why we like it uh, again, the kind of article that I love. Uh, so this, this article, which is uh, published over at Rolling Stone, Black a little a known Rolling magazine, Stone. and it is about, uh, just the science behind being scared and why people like being scared or why people like scary games. And a lot of it's not very surprising. People love the rush. People love adrenaline, that sort of thing. Uh, but what I really liked about this was it dealt specifically in how video games, can, can do that. You know, uh, any movie can give you a rush. Any movie uh, can scare you and other experiences can scare you. But video games are unique um, in a couple of ways that I thought were really important in this article. They, they talk about how a video game can make a player feel brave. And that's something that movies can't do because you're not an active participant. And that idea of feeling brave is in itself. Aside from just the, the the adrenaline from the fear, it is a positive euphoric feeling already. It's a feeling that not a lot of us feel in day in daily life. So I thought that was a really important uh, point that they made. It also uh, video games walk the thin line of trust. They call this in the in the, in the article that uh, we as players trust game developers to give us the tools that we need to succeed in various uh, scenarios. But horror games, more than any other genre, bend that trust. Uh, to the extreme. You know, horror games give us very little of what we need, but just enough of what we need to complete tasks. And I think that's, di- I think from a game development standpoint, that's gotta be difficult. That's gotta be difficult to walk that line between it's too easy, therefore it's not scary, it's too difficult, therefore it's not scary, it's just frustrating and hard, and it's achievable, but barely achievable, and also monsters are eating my face. Uh, it's it's extremely important, and it, and it kind of it reminded me of um, I brought the this book up um, on my uh, on and some of my videos multiple times. It's one of my favorite books because it just really opened opened my eyes to a lot of how f- how fiction and literature works. But it's called How We Read Fiction, and it's a book by Lisa Zunshine, and she talks about the idea of theory of mind, which at its heart is essentially the idea that your brain can't tell the difference between a, a, a story in a book, a narrative in a book, and, and a real life experience. So if you're reading about two people having a fight in a book, your brain interprets that in much the same way as as if you were experiencing two people fighting in real life, um, of course with the baggage of, of narrative and emotion and all that kind of stuff being equal otherwise. Um, and games can do that because games, it, it, basically games also offer that similar type of experience where though we rationally as humans know that we're not in danger when we're playing those games, there's a part of your brain um, according to theory of mind that isn't able to make that difference and so there is a part of your game that truly does feel like it's in danger and and that I think combined with uh, you know, the logical brain, combined with the idea of making us feel brave it makes for a very unique experience that scary games can only deliver. Now all that being said, I personally hate scary games and I don't like playing them, so... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I don't like them <laughs>
1: one of the one of the points that the the article made was one of the the folks they were interviewing and I, I can't remember the name now, but the quote was that constantly being scared is exhausting and not particularly satisfying and you need uh, periods of calm in between the scary and the exhausting. You need sort of that ebb and flow of of spooky and scary to allow your psyche to recharge. And I think that's something that video games as a medium really plays itself well to, as opposed to, say, a, a more of a passive medium where you're just being fed a story. I think those calm periods in more of a passive medium, whether it's a TV show or a movie or a book, could be... Downtime and almost come off as boring and, and allow people to to lose interest. Whereas there are plenty of things that you could do in a video game that aren't scary. They aren't continuing that constant build up, but you're still doing something and you're still trying to accomplish tasks and going about the rest of the gameplay before you get to that next, um, you know, that
0: next exhilarating and scary part. Mm-hmm. Uh, Koshi and Nakan- Nakanishi. Uh, the director of Resident Evil Seven was the person who made that quote. I just happened to look back at the article real quick. Um, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, do you like scary games? Do you play I do. much?
1: I do. I need to be in the right mood for them, and and I think that leads to why you know I, I often say, "Oh yeah, that game is next on my list," because I want to be in a mood where I feel open to being scared, and I feel open to the, sort of the the, the psychological portion of 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 scary games and i also want it to be night you know i don't feel like grabbing a a a game like resident evil 7 or or the evil within you know in on at one o'clock on a sunday you know is is really puts me in that place so those are games that i tend to want to play when i have you know a good amount of time off and I can stay up all night and play games because I love to just be in the setting of Spooky in the middle of the night, be able to turn off the lights and see the moon maybe shining through a window and just get
0: scared. So that's why you didn't like Colot. Okay, it makes sense now. Well, I it During I, the day. I was so. playing
1: it, you know, most of the day. So that mm-hmm. made yep. sense. That so may have something that's it. it. Yeah.
0: So the official verdict is Scott says Colot is great. <laughs> all right. Next. Now that we've solved <laughs> that problem. <laughs> Uh, speaking of scary games, have you played Resident Evil Revelations 1 or 2? I have not.
1: Um hmm. no, hmm. I, this is this is something that it no it came both of them were primarily uh, mobile games and I do have the remakes for PlayStation 4 and just uh haven't haven't gotten around to playing them. Hmm.
0: Well, there may be an opportunity for you to play those games coming up in this very next month of November, and that brings us to our main event for this episode, which uh, we are loosely uh, just basically saying the main event is the Nintendo Switch. Um, There's so much going on with the Nintendo Switch uh, this month, I I think this month especially. So I was watching uh, my, my standard YouTube channels. And I have a, a, quite a few YouTube, uh, 98% of my media is consumed through YouTube. So that's basically what I'm doing most nights is watching YouTube videos. And most of those are video game videos. And one of my, uh, favorite channels is RGT 85. Um, he, you know, not high production quality. There's nothing, you know, dramatically, uh, cool about the style that he has. He's just a, a, a normal guy who has a journalistic kind of, I think he has a journalistic background. Um, and he talks about news events and gaming and things like that, and, and just a really uh, fun way. Uh, that's really he's a he's a personality more so than than the, than the style or anything that's going on in his videos. All that is just a way to say that it's a great channel. You should definitely check him out. But he made a video uh, that was a call that was basically talking about how there's a, a way more great physical Switch releases coming out in November than he kind of realized, and he kind of suddenly hit him. and He's like, I'll make a video about this. And he wasn't lying. I mean, I I would say the one drawback I've had to the Switch so far is that for me personally, there really haven't been a lot of physical release games that I've cared too much about. There's been a lot of fun digital games and I played plenty of those. I played Golf Story until I ran into a game breaking bug that I am hoping they fix soon. But uh, a lot of games that I've been playing, a lot of fun games, but there really hasn't been a lot of physical release games. And all that seems to be changing in November because there are a lot of them. Now, what's crazy about uh, this is that I'm super, super, super excited, even though most of these physical releases, in fact, all but one, are ports, <laughs> are, are remakes, are, are games that are not uh, unique. Now, Mario Odyssey coming out at the end of October could very well be close to this November consideration, but if we exclude Mario Odyssey and look really just at November, we have Sonic Forces, which is coming out November 7th, and that's the one game that's, that's new, uh, Doom, 2016 uh coming out on the switch on the 10th of november rhyme which is a game i'm really looking forward to and i've actually postponed buying it on the ps4 just so that i could buy it on the switch because i think it just feels like a fun switch game that comes out on november uh, 14th la noir comes out on the 14th skyrim comes out on the 17th and resident evil revelations collection which includes uh uh, revelations one and two comes out on the 28th Uh, so a lot of activity coming on the switch and and I won't even get have time to play it because I'm sure I'll be putting hundreds of hours into Mario Odyssey. It feels like that's going to be quite a big game. It's insane. As a physical game
1: supporter, I love that games are starting to to come out in large quantities, physical in on physical media for the Switch. I'm definitely concerned that, as you mentioned, out of the you know eight games. One of them is an exclusive, not counting Mario Odyssey, and the other ones are all ports of relatively old games as you look at it. I still chalk this up to the fact that games have a long development cycle, and I'm thinking that a lot of the things that were signed up for when the switch was announced was just companies saying, Oh yeah, we'll, we'll port something to it and just to be able to be on the platform. So I'm hoping that, you know, we get through this year, get through maybe the first half of next year. And then we start seeing we'll be basically a year and a half out from the actual official launch of the switch. And then maybe we'll start seeing some, some quality, um, you know, top tier, third-party games coming out now i think that it can't be overlooked that the switches uh the physical media style are cards right they're essentially proprietary sd cards for lack of a better comparison they're not blu-ray discs they're not something that can just be stamped and churned out on you know a disc assembly line with very little uh production cost and frankly that that's what makes me the most, I wouldn't say hesitant about the switch because I do enjoy my switch. I, I love Zelda, played a ton of it, played a bunch of Mario Kart, you know, and I'm looking forward to, to Mario Odyssey, despite my, my quips that I made on Twitter, where every, <laughs> every comparison I see to from Mario Odyssey to Mario 64 makes me less excited for it because I tend <laughs> to be a 2d Mario fan, but I will definitely play it looking forward to it. That's all, you know, more tongue in cheek. But I do worry that the media selection for Nintendo, cart versus disc, may end up being an N64 Redux. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think production expense for the Switch cards, and specifically Nintendo, as you mentioned with the, the digital prevalence on the Switch, where physical games just don't seem to be released as much, do you think that we run the risk of uh, an N64-type problem where smaller publishers, more indie publishers, forego releasing games on the Switch because of the development costs of the physical media.
0: I don't think so. I think the N64's problem uh, wouldn't have been a problem had it been released at a time when digital downloadable content was so big you know, having uh, indie developers don't need to, In fact, most of the games on the virtual, not, I almost said virtual console. Shame on me for thinking Switch had a virtual console. Uh, m- <laughs> most of the games uh, that are currently downloadable for the Switch are indie games um, or at least games from smaller publishers, uh, even if they're not independent. So, are uh, smaller developers. So, I, I don't think so. I think that there's, the Nintendo has a history of using proprietary media. In fact, I think Wii, the discs used in in, even GameCube, when you go back to GameCube they they had to do their own thing and have smaller discs than everyone else so I don't know if that's a a way to try to avoid uh, piracy or something like that but they've always had their proprietary media Um, I, I think, or their proprietary the medium is proprietary and I think that they've done that as a way to everything Nintendo does is a way to help further identify the thing with Nintendo, like I won't be able to look at a tiny card even an SD card looking shape thing without thinking of a game, a, a, Nintendo game. Um, I can't, I still can't look at small three inch CDs and think anything but GameCube because there weren't really a lot of other, uh, people using those. And so they want to own the touch points. They want to, they want to own the, the sort of mental real estate at every step possible. And I think that's part of why they have physical, physical media and they continue to push for it. They also know that, uh, they're still a very big company and people will still put out games, even though it costs more money. Uh, to to distribute on there, but ultimately, I think it's my first point where I, I don't think it's going to be a big deal because people are becoming aware of digital, um, and they're and they're more likely to download digital digital copies, so so the the, the distribution costs aren't really going to be a problem. All that being said, though, it's very strange that the switch out of the box just comes with 32 gigabytes of storage, which you would think it would be they they sh- they would have a huge amount of storage if they really did want to bank on people being able to download games and and use and download digital copies, but. What are you going to do? Yeah.
1: Well, and you know, you'll always can bank on someone like limited run games Mm -hmm. coming along and throwing a bone to crotchety old bastards like me who refuse to (laughs) get with the times and rent digital games. So limited run (laughs) games this week announced, um, in kind of a cool way. I thought a very Thinly-veiled way, but uh, they announced that they were going to be releasing Switch games in 2018, and they did so with a series of contests on Twitter where they gave away uh, various Nintendo products. They gave away, had a contest where one day they gave away a Switch, one day they gave away a SNES Classic, and then they randomly gave away a copy of Breach and Clear, their first game, and an Orange, uh, a Spice Orange PlayStation Vita, which didn't really fit the theme, but it was awesome <laughs> nonetheless. But Switch games coming physically from limited run games starting in 2018, and the only thing I can say to that is, well, I guess I can say two things, awesome and Oh my god, my wallet hates you.
0: <laughs> what do you think the price point's going to be? Right now the standard limited run PlayStation game, Vita game, $25, $30 usually kind of around that price point. Um higher for the collect for the truly collectors editions. What's your guess on what the uh, what the price will be? The average price for a Switch game will be?
1: I think Switch games will be $10 higher than the normal. So I think Switch games base price will be 35, possibly 30 Um, but I tend to think probably 35 and then on up to, to 40 or 45 for some of the more marquee games, because the, the PS4 and the Vita games tended to run 25 base price on up to 29.99 and a very few of them were 39.99. But if you look at just switch game pricing in general, um, things like rhyme, um, things that have been released relatively more or less at the same time across platforms you'll see there's almost a a ten dollar switch tax on game (laughs) prices and i think that my guess on why that is i don't think it has to do with just the switch being the new hot thing i think the large part of that is the fact that it just costs more to produce those games physically
0: yeah but then you've also got uh like Cave Story, you know, Cave Story, I think the Troll and I are two games that are, I think are $30 brand new on the Switch. So it is possible to get them lower. Um, you know, I, I wonder if it's because they didn't have the baggage of, of being high profile games. You know, Rhyme was a game that a lot of people are looking forward to. So they probably knew more people would pay for it. I, I'm i going to. So, <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible.
1: Um, I don't remember if Cave Story was released for other platforms. Oh, I think the right. I think the the Switch version is the only physical one I have, but I think even the the games that have that have been cross-platform, um, that have been $30 on the Switch have been $20 games elsewhere. I think that $10 buffer for cross-platform stuff except for, you know, your your full price $50, $60 games, AAA type titles has been pretty consistent.
0: That's a good point. And actually, I think Cave Story was a PC game. Uh, not just recently, but I think it was a PC game a number of years ago. So I think it's, it's a fairly old game too. So I could be wrong on that, but I'm, I I wish I had something like the internet at my fingertips to be able to verify that, but no, no, I don't. We don't do that sort of thing (laughs) around
1: here. We just talk randomly and shake our fists in the sky when we don't know something.
0: (laughs) Uh, speaking of not knowing stuff, I don't think either of us know when to stop and maybe that when is now what do you think
1: you know these podcasts keep getting longer and longer (laughs) we started out as a bi-weekly one-hour podcast and we've quickly grown to a bi-weekly one and a half hour podcast
0: by the time this is
1: done we're going to be a 24 7 network run by disney and uh, people will hate
0: us for you know spewing uh, our nazi talk into the ether we've got the nazi talk down already we've talked about (laughs) wolfenstein like on almost every episode Uh, I should probably, I should probably not use what we'd say. uh, I should not term that as just Nazi talk. That could be taken out of context. Uh, For anyone who just tuned into this podcast at the very end of it, well, one, that's stupid. So, I don't know, you're, what are you, a Nazi? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Without that being said. Please please round us out.
1: So much success on uh, episode seven of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we certainly are grateful. We know there are a ton of podcasts out there, a ton of gaming podcasts, a ton of things competing for your time. And
0: Don't remind them about that. We are God. so
1: thankful that <laughs> somehow you blindly stumbled across our podcast and spent the uh, better part of the past two hours with us my name is scott you can find me on the internet twitter or facebook or instagram at vg collectaholic and with me as always is caleb j ross you can find Mm. him on the twitter on the facebook on the youtubes because Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. He just has, has nothing but time to deliver glorious, glorious content into your ears and into your eyeballs. Um, check him out on YouTube. It is by far one of my favorite YouTube channels, hence the reason he's on this podcast.
0: You know, Aww. he just
1: puts up with me. I just am along for the ride. He's the entertaining one, and I'm the blatherer.
0: Oh, <laughs> you keep talking like that. I might have to deliver some wonderful content into you as well. Oh, <laughs>
1: Ha <laughs> huzzah. <Now. laughs> oh, the Nazis are not gonna like you. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, uh. <laughs> exactly. So if you are looking for us moving along here, if uh if you're looking for us collectively, you can find us on the Twitterverse at M-O-U Podcast. In case you're wondering, that stands for Masters of Unlocking Podcast. And you can find us on the web at www.mastersofunlocking.com. Hit us up on iTunes, on the Google Play, or on Stitcher. And if you really liked us, and by now you've listened to an hour and a half of podcast and five minutes of my incoherent rambling after the podcast, (laughs) please go ahead, give us a thumbs up, give us a five-star rating, leave a little, leave some kind words for us, leave some mildly decent words for us. You know what? Even leave some trolling words for us. We're fine with that, too. But... We'd certainly appreciate it. Uh, Hit us up. We're always happy to chat. And we will see you next time, two weeks from now, on Episode 8 of the Masters of Unlocking Podcast. Happy Halloween, everybody.